and welcome to the Squamates Podcast. This is a very serious podcast about reptiles and amphibians where the language is strong and the jargon is stronger. I am one of your three co-hosts. My name is Dr. Mark D. Schertz. I am a herpetologist and an evolutionary biologist, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Ethan Kosak. Uh, hi, I'm Ethan Kosak. I am a cartoonist and illustrator, full-time now, and a salamander enthusiast. And Gabriel Ugetto. And I'm Gabriel Ugetto, and I'm a paleo artist and scientific illustrator. And I used to work in hepatology, but not anymore. Although that might change, I still work. Also, Gabriel has a very squeaky chair. So. <laughs> yes, and he's going to make noise during the whole episode. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're back with another Breaking Newts episode. Of course... At the moment, there's all kinds of news of a not-so-pleasant nature, uh, but this is your place to escape from the world outside and listen to us and our lovely voices talking about all of the coolest new research in herpetology. Um, uh, and my squeaky chair. And, and Gabriel's squeaky chair. <laughs> Pretend it's a euthodactylus. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's actually, you're right, it is better... <laughs> than having my old Eleutherodactylus. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know, I enjoy them both. <laughs> Thingol was his name, Elu Thingol. Um, Nerd. Right. So, yes, uh, there were... Uh, there are a few things that have, that have become available uh, in this current time where people are not able to go to their universities. I, for example, am not able to go to my university, so I'm having to have my frogs that usually live in my office taken care of by um, the person who runs the zoo that happens to be in my university, which is very convenient for me. Um, but yeah, so all of our semester things are going to be online. And um, of course, there will be more talk about that in the next episode. But uh, already just wanted to mention that uh, Kristen Winchell and Colin Donahue have put together a lovely list of learning material about lizards and, of course, anoles in particular. I hope that will be the only mention of anoles in this episode. Um, that you can find at Anol Annals. Uh, if you go and look at the blog, it's called Anol Online Learning Resources, or you can uh, go to our show notes, and there you will find a link to that website. So that's a cool thing in case you are uh, craving more knowledge about Anols. And so... We almost made an Anol-free episode... Until then. <laughs> until until now. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, yeah. I think we managed about three minutes of a null free content, which is a very yes. impressive record. All right. So uh, this is, as I said, a Breaking Newts episode. And so you know what time it is. Breaking Newts. I feel like that's a little bit overplayed considering that we now break our episodes into different or, or sections into different episodes. I still episodes. think if we're going to do it, we should actually do it. Like, have, like, the, you know, because you can get the news. Yeah, we could do that. We could do that. I might have to delegate that to one of you guys to make us a jingle. Um, <laughs> you know what? If it'll make you stop with the did it, did it, did it, I'll do it. <laughs> yes. That's what the people come for, Ethan. I don't know what you're talking about. This is like, this is the top of our quality. Um, all right, but we're going to kick off the papers. And you know what? We're going to take a nice and non-controversial paper as our first paper. We're going to talk about this paper. I don't know if you heard about it. 
It's by uh, Lida Shing et al. And it was published in Nature. And the title is A Hummingbird-Sized Dinosaur from the Cretaceous Period of Myanmar. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, this received lots and lots of media attention. It was the cover image of the issue. It was a very, very big deal until... (laughs) It turned out to be a lizard. Gabriel, you can tell us exactly what happened. No, I mean, I say I wasn't. I said I wasn't going to talk about these pieces anymore because there are plenty of issues that I'm sure you guys are going to discuss about uh, with how the material for which it was described was obtained yeah. and what you know all the. So the the Burmese amber thing is just a, been a giant. It's fiasco. a huge problematic thing. The way that the amber is acquired is the problem. Yes. Uh, right. And. So, There's a lot of online material about that. We will also link to some of that in the show notes because lots of uh, paleontologists have actually been writing about how problematic this is. Um, and like I was not aware of how serious it is. We've talked right. in the past about yeah. uh, papers that have also been published by uh, Shing and colleagues. Um, and we, were, were, we, were, we were all totally unaware of how, how problematic yes, it yeah. was. Yeah. I was completely, I mean, I've heard a tiny bit, but I was very, I didn't know nearly half of it. Yeah. It was of how problematic it was. And, and surprisingly, I thought, I think a lot of people, even paleontologists, were quite unaware of a lot of, it, of the issues until recently. Totally. Yeah. But aside from all the ethical issues that survive, surround this paper, there's also the rather large issue that it turns out that actually... Calling it a dinosaur is pretty wrong. (laughs) So, uh, regrettably, pretty immediately, people started looking at the micro-CT scans. Um, One of the big problems with this paper is that they did not make available their micro-CT scans, which for a paper published in Nature, where they're all about open data, I find that totally unacceptable because there are really good repositories where you can put your micro-CT scans you can put them on Morphosource or you can put them on Figshare or whatever. They clearly just didn't want to do that. So um, they posted, of course, they're in the paper. There are pictures of the skull and you can zoom in on those pictures in pretty high definition. And you can see, for example, the teeth. And hence. Uh, well, yes, uh, the <laughs> teeth are very clearly not those of a bird. Um, it has pleurodont dentition. Which is which is not very um, reptile, uh, 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 birdy, dinosaur. Yeah. It's not archosaur. It's not archosaur. It's not so, archosaur. Yeah, so it's not a it's not a pterosaur. It's not a dinosaur. No, and we think it might be an arboreal ichthyosaurus. Um, <laughs> I mean, so the thing about this skull, of course, the reason it was likened to a hummingbird, it's minuscule. It's very, very, very small. It also has an extremely elongated rostral process. Um, The comparative size measurements are all based on the brain case because they didn't bother to actually measure the entire rostral appendage so that they don't know actually how long or didn't mention how long the actual skull is. Um, But... Yeah, so most clearly, it's not a bird. It doesn't have an antorbital fenestra, which is a clear sign that it's not an archosaur, I believe. Um, and yeah, and, so and, and that's why putting it more to the point. That's why we're talking about it. Is, yes, exactly. <laughs> so, of course, if it were well, a one bird, of the reasons, it would... well, why, why one of the reasons why, why Mark wanted to talk about it was because it was said that it was a 
the pterosaur. That it was uh, uh, actually it was even said that it was a squamid, and in some very quick analysis, it came back as a probably an early decotton. Yeah, yeah. Which I find. I also don't buy that. Um, yeah. There are a few things about the the skull when you look at the the close up images when you enhance. Um, it there are clearly feathers floating in the matrix uh, within this this piece of amber uh, or feather like crystallization patterns also possible but who knows um, there are bits that look like there are scales so we have a weird combination of the two things which is part of the reason it was considered possibly a lepidosaur um, fluorodont dentition doesn't really add up for uh, the the avian lineage. Um, so we have all kinds of weirdness about it. Um, and there's been all kinds of other discussion that people have the postcranial skeleton. They already know that it's not a bird or whatever. But So um, stupid, stupid question. But so what is pleurodont? Can you just <laughs> can you go over that? Yeah, the difference between acrodont and pleurodont. Yeah. Right. So acrodont teeth are. And tecodont. Right. So, so thecodont teeth are sort of embedded or semi-embedded within the bone. Uh, acrodont teeth are totally fused to the bone. So chameleons have entirely acrodont dentition. Uh, uh, thecodont dentition is what you see in the, the dinosaurs. And pleurodont dentition is where the, um, the tooth sort of loosely sits on top of the bone. And often you have another tooth that's just underneath it or just beside it that sort of helps. I guess that's why it's called pleuro, because it's sort of you have a plurality of teeth. That would be my guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, cro cro crocodilians also have tecodon teeth. That's a good example of ah, yeah. tecodon yeah, teeth. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, you, you know, if the tooth really slots into a hole in the in the upper jaw, um, then that is that is what we call a tecodont. And Iguanians all have acrodont teeth, if I'm correct. I think that's one of the... No, there uh, are Iguanians that have pleurodont teeth too. But acrodontia but it's, are those so that have just, exclusively acrodont dentition. Exactly. So I, all I wanted to clarify, too, was this is a, a descriptive term of the teeth. It has nothing to do with the phylogeny of the animal, necessarily. Well, yeah, no, so but, multiple but, but transitions but it, between it, uh, these states. Okay. Yeah, but it's a character that... that it's a diagnostic character, but it's not... Uh, for several groups. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right, and there are, for example, as far as I'm aware, no archosaurs that have uh, a pleurodont dentition. It, that was one of the uh, shots in the grave for, for this particular They attributed case. the differences to miniaturization, and this is why right. one of the first people that came into my mind was Mark, because he's done work with miniature frogs and miniature chameleons, and you would think that, you know, I've... What do you think about that? <laughs> well, okay, so it's kind about of interesting. Miniaturization doing crazy stuff. To because you. if this is, of course, uh, an archosaur, then it is super miniaturized because, as far as we know, hummingbirds are the smallest archosaurs ever. But if it is a reptile, a, a, a squamate, the squamates are... Uh, that would be quite big for a squamate, actually. Um, well, it, but also, it's unlike any squamate we've ever it's seen. It's totally unlike all of the other squamates. Yeah. So whatever yes. it is, it's really cool. 
It's just that they were over hasty in saying, oh, look, a, a hummingbird-sized dinosaur that was running around in the Cretaceous. Well, no, that's that's not... One thing I want to say, when, when, when I saw some comments online, when people were comparing it to geckos, and they said, well, yeah, look at spherodactylus because of the point is a skull. No, it doesn't look anything like spherodactylus. So don't say that. No, I mean, what is really it? What the skull? If you if you didn't know the scale of the skull, what it really really looks like is an ichthyosaur. It has a very long, <laughs> yes, true. like fish hunting yeah. thing, and and yeah. and big eyes. So I mean, you know, that's sort of the, part of the reason that I was making fun of this the whole time and being like, oh, it's clearly an arboreal miniaturized ichthyosaur <laughs> or, you know, uh, uh, there you know have what? been who also the, some I people mean, who were like, oh, it's at, like a pterosaur or whatever. At but, this point, at this point, who the hell knows? Because, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So there are a few signs that seem to be pointing in the direction of a, of a lepidosaur, possibly even a squamate, but, um, and we know also from this amber formation, there are other squamates, lots of geckos, for example, running around. The oldest geckos are also known from Burmite. Um, so there are things that would point in the direction that it's possible that, but this is really, really bizarre uh, uh, morphology of this animal. So um, just to... And I just want to say... More quickly, that I made a stupid mistake and I forgot that one of the differences between agamids and iguanians or iguan or within iguanian lizards, the difference between ag agamids and the super family iguanidae, which includes all the other families like basses and anolis and all that, is the teeth. Uh, agamids tend to have acrodon teeth and iguanians tend to have pleurotons. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and chameleons as well. That's what puts the acrodontia within the iguania. Acrodontia consists of uh, the agamids and the chameleons, both of which have these acrodon teeth. Actually, uh, Yara yes. Haridi, who you can follow on Twitter, she is super awesome. Um, she has done a lot of posts and uh, she's written several papers on acrodonty and, uh, and pleurodonty. And there are apparently... Uh, some agamids that have some of their teeth pleurodont and some of them are uh, acrodont. So there, there are these transitional phases in between them yeah. um, that are really important. Are, there are no, I can't think of a single squamate that has anything like that morphology though. So this nope, would be... No, I, but, not that I can remember. But I think what um, what Gabriel's already mentioned, this the, that people have been talking about spherodactylus in comparison is kind of justified because when you look at the hyper-miniaturized spherodactylids, they do have a seemingly elongated rostrum, okay, but, but nothing this like this, this no, crazy elongation. No, this is the difference. They, this animal has like, this animal almost has like a beak-like beak yeah. structure yeah. It, yeah. because it's rounded and it's it's separate. It's, it's not a continuation from, this, from the back of the well, core. Like if you see a spherodactylid, spherodactylid it's like a... It's like a triangle, right? It doesn't have this shape. Yeah. Like a, if, like a it, yeah I mean, I agree with you that it does almost look like an ichthyosaur, but my first thought was that it looked like... I mean, again, they th they said hummingbird, and I thought pollinator. Like, it looks like something that would be a pollinator. Plunging, yeah, yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's yeah. big like... It's big like. Are there... Uh, yeah. Are there... I mean, uh, there are... Do we know of 
are there squamates that act as pollinators? I guess probably. Yes, very, so geckos, geckos in particular. Yeah. So Felsuma geckos are really well known to be uh, pollinators. Mm -hmm. um, and all these, even 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 the green anoli act as a pollinator. Yeah. So, so <sighs> we just give up on not mentioning anolis. It's evolutionarily something like that could evolve, you know, like hypothetically. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's not like it hasn't evolved in the past. I mean, there are other animals that have very weird elongated snouts. Um, it could be through pollination or and and, and a, a transition to a more um, nectar nectarivorous uh, diet, but it could also be because they're eating all kinds of beetles that are living inside holes and they're uh, like woodpeckering it out. Especially yeah. if this was a an arboreal forest animal, which is what yeah. which is very likely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I think what's extra funny about the silly ichthyothor hypothesis is that there are also, um, of course, uh, ammonites that have been preserved in amber, in the same amber, presumably um, blown from the beach into this, this sap. Um, <laughs> but that's you're slowly building then an <laughs> aquatic fauna how is it getting stuck in amber yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I i haven't I, you know i haven't i know about the ammonites but i just found that uh concept strange but. well you know yeah, it's completely and, bizarre and, you know making we were yes. making jokes about your your porch shark earlier and yeah. that's a case yeah. you know that's a case where I mean, if your porch was a tree with sap, I mean... <laughs> and the ammonites we're yeah, talking about I mean, are teeny just, tiny. <laughs> and I don't know how close this area was to coast, so... Yeah, so yeah. I think that this formed during a time when uh, there was a seaway that was slowly being uh, constricted, and so... But it has a, I, was under the, I was under the impression that this particular opiodentalis came from an inland deposit, which is... Yeah, okay. One of the interesting things about it. So I don't know. But I don't know. I'm not completely sure. I don't know exactly which bit this, this thing came from. Anyway, we can move on. The point being, yes. uh, it's possibly relevant to the show. And, <laughs> and also, it's a real fiasco to have something like this published in Nature. And I imagine, I haven't seen any uh, Nature published responses yet, but I imagine they're really coming. So, all right. We can move on to an even less... Uh, or, or a substantially less, but still somewhat controversial topic. <laughs> um, our next paper is by uh, Michel Breu et al., uh, published in Zookeys. The title is Painted Black, Iguana Melanoderma, a new melanistic endemic species from Saba and Montserrat Islands in the Lesser Antilles. There's a problem with the title as well, okay? <laughs> because they're not really from. I mean, if you read the paper, they're not really from there. They're introduced, right? You said they were. That's what the paper implies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they are there, but they're not endemic there. From there, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. So how can you say it's an endemic species? Yeah. E e well, it's the only two places that they're known, so I guess you can call it an endemic species. So it's not a good no, start they, for talking about the paper. I, they they actually sample one of the... To, that's how they come up with that, because they sample one from Cumaná in Venezuela, which is to a mainland population, but they say it's actually Melanoderma as well. 
what they think it is. Yeah. Right? Like that when you read the paper in figure, uh, open the paper for a minute. I mean, that's, but, yeah. So there's an interesting thought. Are there animals, <laughs> are there animals that are introduced? I suppose there probably are animals that are introduced, but the original endemic oh, population yeah. no longer exists. All the time, and, and these are were probably well, their justification for saying that is actually correct. Yeah. These are animals that were probably very important for the carib, uh, paleo or not paleo actually the the carib uh, Amerindians of the area that colonized the uh, Caribbean islands from northern South America. That's so it's part of their migration. It's not incorrect to think that that is actually yeah, and it, I think there are other cases of those colonization. The, the thing is, and now the paper is not loaded. Give me a second, because I want to find out. I, I, I don't know if you had a problem with this, Mark, as well, but I had problems um, finding where the specimens came from. Yes. Um, they, they don't it's, have... It's not great. It's really no, not and great. It's a problem, because I was trying to look. They, they report stuff from Gene Bank, I guess. And then there are other, the, the number, the, they don't have like a... Usually at the end of a paper, you list the specimen examined and where the specimens even for genetic data sometimes you list where you can go where you can go look at it and this paper doesn't have that yeah I mean table one sort of has this but it's very confusingly laid out so it's yes and it's I cannot find all the specimens from all the areas yeah because I looked yeah and if you look at figure four mark uh no, yeah, so I have. So this is a really good point. I wanted to talk about Figure Four in some detail. Um, so haplotype networks are notoriously very difficult to understand. Um, still, one of my, you know, I, I've more or less stopped using uh, Tumblr as a platform for for science communication because Twitter is so much bo- better at it for me. Um, but my my number one, I think, most popular. Uh, Tumblr posts still today that's constantly being like accessed by people is how to read and understand a haplotype network because people are like looking at a haplotype network I do not understand at all what's going on um, and it's impossible of course for me to explain that really over the medium of the podcast but um, what is evident from the figure four which is a haplotype network of various different iguana populations is one, they have very, very few populations sampled, shockingly few populations sampled, which I personally find relatively unacceptable because they show super high genetic diversity within the common iguana, 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 um, but relatively conserved uh, uh, haplotype diversity within specific lineages. Yeah. Of which they well, this, have, unfortunately, only very few samples, which is a serious problem. We've we've talked about iguana speciation papers before, and and how and about that, about how they are extremely. Uh, this is a continuation yeah. of the same research. Exactly. But why don't we why don't we say exactly, Mark, first what the paper is about? Because I don't think we gave right. Okay. Listeners of that. Well, idea. Gabriel, perhaps you give that overview best. Okay, so the paper is, uh, and you all, you guys know how I feel about this. This is something I've been waiting for a long time. The paper is about uh, a population uh, from iguanas from the islands of Saba and Montserrat and San Croix, which are, I'm sorry, Croix, that are uh, melanistic, yeah, 
not completely black, but they're very, very dark with dark black patches in certain parts of the body. And those animals seem to be genetically and morphologically, because there's some morphological differences, different from the other populations from other islands like St. Lucia, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines and Grenada, which recently were named different subspecies from Iguana Iguana. Remember, like a few episodes or several episodes ago, we talked about Iguana Iguana Insulares and Iguana Iguana Santa Lucia. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, okay, so, so this, this is one, this is a continuation. This is the same research. Yes, it's a continuation of that of that uh, paper okay. and explores populations of iguanas from Montserrat and uh, Sala and St. Croix. So uh, they basically say in this paper that those populations, even though they're found in those uh, islands now, probably were introduced by Amerindians in the past as they colonized the Caribbean islands from northeastern, from the northeastern coast of uh, South America, Venezuela, basically. Uh, they specifically cite Cumaná, which is a city in the northeastern portion of Venezuela. So they were. Uh, th this was a. So they were eating or yeah, because, or using the skin. Exactly, or? because we have to keep in mind that iguanas are an important part of the mm. uh, uh, alimentation, the feeding of their of their food uh, uh, from Amerindians. Even even today, a lot of people in the countryside in South America eat iguanas. It's it's not uncommon that you see them selling iguanas on the road and people eat them. Like it's not, it's, you know, I've had eaten iguanas before. Yeah, lizard meat is tasty. It's it's fish. It tastes like fish and it tastes like between fish and chicken. It's like alligator. I was going to say, yeah, I've been, I've been that reading a like lot alligator. of fish taxonomy yeah. papers recently <laughs> and they list the flavor of the fish as a taxonomic character. So. <laughs> really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Because uh, so, uh, uh, meat-eating fish tastes a lot better than plant-eating fish, so you can uh, tell their trophic habits by how their meat tastes. Huh. Makes sense. Is that why catfish taste kind of muddy? Because they... Yeah, they taste yeah. really muddy. That's correct. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's an acquired taste. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> so anyway, um, so so they were a, this was a food source for, for people, and that's probably why they're where, distributed the way they are. Yeah, and and so and the paper also looks at it. it uh, keeps the uh, you have to keep in mind that in the Lesser Antilles there is another iguana species, Iguana delicatissima, which is it has been recognized as a separate species forever because it's, it's, it's different. It doesn't have the large uh, round uh, scale, typical there, yeah. large round yeah, plate that iguanas have on their that iguana iguana species complex has under the below John. the tympanum. Uh, so uh, yes. So this is a continuation of that, but there are some issues with how they reach that they reach their conclusions, right, Mark? Yeah, well, so there are a few things that are a bit weird. Um, I still do not understand so so part of what you can see if you look at figure four is that the individuals that are assigned to Iguana Iguana uh, coming from various different locations, including Suriname, Brazil, Venezuela, French Guiana. Um, these are all kinds of different haplogroups in, in some places separated by as many as 24 
uh, uh, single mutations, right? Well, I, I think that the one iguana from Venezuela that they said that it's part of the melanoderma. Well, that's exactly the problem because what they say in the key to this figure is common iguana from Venezuela, and it's separated by only four mutations or five mutations from melanoderma as they now define it. But in the text, they sort of equivocate as to whether or not it really should be the same species. If it is the same species, then the distribution is substantially larger than the two different islands that they've mentioned. Um, if it's well, not the same species, then it's really not clear. That data point comes see, from a different paper, which is difficult. Part of the part of the problem is that is that data is not available for most populations of Venezuela, which are seems to be key in this particular issue. Yeah. And I find it very unlikely that it will be in the future for political reasons. Mm. So it's uh it's uh it's a pain. And, and, and within Venezuela, what they're saying is that there are a lot of black iguanas in the coast and in the islands offshore uh, from Venezuela. And I read that and I went like, yeah, but some of those black iguanas from the islands offshore Venezuela, like the, the Venezuelan Antil Antilles, um, are not the same as the black iguanas that are on the mainland. And I know that because I've seen them, mm -hmm. and uh, and and so there needs to be a lot more research. Now I don't find this problematic. I mean, the melanoderma situation. What I find problematic is I I can see this situation that they describe very plausible, right? Like they carry these iguanas there, and in the same population that is on the mainland uh, was actually present in Saba and Montserrat because of the Amerindians, and it has nothing to do with Iguana Insulana, Insu, Insulares. What's the name of the one from, um, that they just described from the uh, Grenadines? Did they? Insulares. And there's, there's no indication that the, that the American Amerindians were uh, selectively breeding them for this, right? This no, 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 no. What they, what they say is that you, the, the, what they're trying to explain with this is a discrepancy in distribution. So imagine that these iguanas are found in islands that are further north mm -hmm. that were Insulares and the other one that I can't remember, Santa Lucia, are found, right? So if you were, if those were natural uh, populations, you wouldn't expect them to be close, more, the ones that are farther north to be more closely related to right. the mainland okay. than the other two, right? Yeah. So, uh, so... I, I find that plausible, likely even. My problem is that uh, the, the the what they the the, um, uh, the evidence that they're providing in the paper is not super strong because they lack more sampling, and, uh, right. and it's a shame. It's a shame because it's very difficult to find sampling from those areas. So I understand why they did it. Too. Because you won't be able to find a lot of sampling from coming out from Venezuela because of political mm -hmm. reasons. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. I, I'm I think what's missing for me, uh, you know, even with their so the genetic sampling is not great, but what's missing for me is also like a careful analysis of of morphology, like a PCA, 
where are the what are the morphological differences in terms of a PCA between these different species, and how how do they cluster? How do the genetic um, uh, clades within iguana iguana cluster? How is it that there is so much is such incredible amounts of uh, of genetic diversity within iguana iguana, and yet not within the other species? Like, is that reflecting your sampling bias, or is it rather because um, there the the distribution range is so much smaller? There's all kind. I mean, huge gaps well, within I, the iguana I, I iguana sampling. Of course, I was only curious about but, the uh, the selective breeding side of things, just because I know that iguanas are extremely plastic as as goes color presentation. I, I, I've seen, you know, as far as iguanas in the pet trade, there's they come in pretty much every every variety imaginable. <laughs> but, yeah. but these are not only difference. Uh, they they do they do say some morphological variation which I found interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the first time that I've seen like if you see figure six where they describe like the the, the different arrangement of scales Mm -hmm. and stuff, there there are differences. And 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 it's the first paper where I see people seriously discussing this, Mm -hmm. uh, which is great. And also is we finally can say that there are Iguana iguana has been separated now into what? Rhinolopha, iguana iguana. That iguana iguana is now restricted to eastern South America, east of the Andes, and south of the Orinoco River, probably. So, <laughs> and Florida. Uh, it's, no, we have Rhinolopha. <laughs> oh, you have here. Rhinolopha. Have okay. Yeah. So, Rhinolopha is a Central American one, the big orange with the horn. thing with the horns. And then there's Santa Lucia and Insulana, which also have horns. Gotcha. And these black things that don't have horns. My thing is that we don't know exactly, when you read this paper, we know that Melanoderma seems to be a valid taxon and is present at least in Saba and Montserrat. It might also be present in the in northeastern Venezuela, and but we don't know the exact limits of the distribution of the species yet. So how do you refer to the iguanas in northern South America? We'll see. And and the, and the and in the figure that we were talking about, figure four, I think one of the situations is that they have. Uh, let me just double check. Yeah, one of the reasons why they have. Uh, the, the probably a lot of these populations that are still within iguana iguana, are not. Uh, you know, they're probably still they're probably still undescribed taxa within one of them. So mm-hmm. even within yeah. Yeah. Uh, my so my concern looking especially at their phylogeny is that there is this risk that we're moving towards oversplitting. Because if we if we start to divide iguana iguana based on the five haplotypes that they have represented in that tree. And then you discover that, oh, there are actually iguana iguana um, populations that bracket melanoderma. Well, then suddenly we have to split off those populations or start treating melanoderma now again as a subspecies of iguana iguana or whatever, because because we don't know the full picture because the sampling is just not, not I, I, there. I can tell you, I can tell you that if iguana, iguana melanoderma is the same thing that is in more, more eastern coast of Venezuela, which extends throughout the northern coast of mainland Venezuela and Isla de Margarita also, and probably Trinidad. If that is the same thing, 
Um, there is another population that probably that species hybridized with at some point in central Venezuela because the iguanas from the Llanos in Venezuela, which might be iguana iguana by itself, uh, or iguana iguana census strict according to this, um, might interbreed with that in some point. So, yes, we still need to see a lot of a, a lot of more material coming. Unfortunately, I mean, I would love to see more sampling done, but it's yeah, kind of unlikely. I mean, my my final bone to pick with the manuscript is that they the diagnosis is phenomenally vague. The entire diagnosis of the new species is a species of iguana with a distinctive <laughs> melanistic phenotype with a black dewlap, huge tubercular nape scales, and absence of horns on the snout. That's it. That is really, really, really short. Also, they've only designated one holotype, of course, and one paratype. Despite having several specimens, there are undoubtedly more specimens in other museums, and they've only designated two specimens? That's crazy. But I told That's you why people don't want to... This is the problem that studying iguana has. The, the reason why people don't want to study these big animals is because they're a pain. Because you have this huge... Uh, you know, you, you don't want to go through 40 specimens of these huge things that <laughs> where do you put them? So it's... it's well, I mean, in, in Munich, we had the largest collection of crocodile skulls. So, like... But it's the same. Can, but it's not the same. There's always somewhere you can store them. Yeah, but working with... Six-foot lizards, yeah. No, and working with preserved animals in... in, in, in yeah, I mean, we also animal. have, like, 40 pythons. So... <laughs> You know, I didn't Python's enjoy. It. I work with them. I work with giant tupinambis and and, and amoebas, and I was like, don't. <laughs> so no, it's not fun. But but I yeah. sympathize. So, but I still think two specimens of an iguana that's that's not good sampling no, in terms of, of actual type specimens. I'm yeah. gonna say though, um, there are there are things that I want to see in the future. I want to see more work done on mainland South America. I want to see work done on color differences within juveniles, which I know there is. So, hint, hint, people look at that. <laughs> and, uh, and so, but I'm happy, honestly, to see this finally unraveling because for years it drove me mad about how, you know, I knew that there was such hidden diversity within one and nobody was... Really looking at it, so. Well, you know, that makes me wonder, what about, because I mean, down, aren't there like these huge farming operations for iguanas where they, they, <laughs> they essentially breed and, and ship them all over the world? Yeah. And we won't get into, you know, that, but. The problems with that. Right? I, I wonder if that could be useful as far as acquiring yeah, specimens. Yeah, the, the thing is, that I think most of those those are coming are still coming from Costa Rica mm. and those are Reno Loso, so far as we know but I think for what I've seen uh, all Central America seems to be pretty pretty uh, uh, uniform in yeah. Reno Loso. so it, my problem is, is 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 in these Caribbean islands and this is why it's important in these Caribbean islands because now they're getting newly introduced rhinolophas mm -hmm. within those islands. So they're getting a mix because all these things are interbreeding. The, the Iguana Melanodorma with rhinolopha and Delicatissima. 
So, so it's, it's really it can more be of a, really it, messy. It's almost more of a but it, species complex anyway, though, because if they're all interbreedable, they're all hybridized. Delicatissima, delicatissima is not closely related, but it can interbreed. Mm. I mean, it's closely related that it's in the same genus, but it's not super similar. Yeah. And it can interbreed too. So it's a big problem because you can get, uh, you can really affect the local endemic populations of these species. Yeah, totally. So, uh, for conservation purposes, all this taxonomy has a really, really big impact. Uh, for yeah. anyone who's trying to breed them, it has a big impact. So, I mean, getting it getting it clear and right is 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 important. And I think you know this is a this is an important um, step in that direction. I don't want to understate that, but I also don't want to understate the fact that like there are certain taxonomic things that I would want to be seeing especially a more detailed like also statistical demonstration of the um of uh, morphological differences that would be really useful so all right we can move on now i think that's enough time on the iguanas um, <laughs> i read this, this paper going three do laps out of length. five <laughs> All right, we'll, um, we'll move on to talk about some crazy-ass turtles. So um, the next paper is by Mario Vargas Ramirez et al., uh, published in Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution, or actually in press in Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution, um, entitled, Genomic Analyses Reveal Two Species of the Matamata, mm. uh, which is in Chelos, the genus, and clarify their phylogeography. This is pretty cool. It's been coming for a long time, eh? Yeah. Because there was a paper, uh, I'm going to tell you, it was a 1995 paper by... Um, give me one second. Let me find the exact author. Um, one second, please. Cellus Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I knew it. They are a cool turtle. Okay. Sanchez Villagra et al. in 1985 found differences between the morphological differences and coloration differences between the uh, Amazonian or typical Amazonian Kellos fimbriata and populations of, of, of uh, Kellos that lived in the Llanos of Venezuela and the Orinoco Basin. Um, those differences included plastron, coloration, spotting, and some plastic, I think some differences in uh, plastron uh, plate uh, distribution or shape. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we know about this, and actually Darren Nice wrote a blog about it. Which I which turned into a comic at one point. You did? Yeah. Oh, I, awesome. I'll have to dig that out. I have the, uh, the, that was one of the Tetsu comics. It will be in the show notes or on at least a link to it will be in the show notes. So, yeah. um, yeah. so this paper finally took that and put some genetic, uh, studies to go along with the, with the morphological data. And they did find that there are two, you know, distinct species within Kellos. Now, as I understood the 1995 paper from Sanchez Vidaya, the, the limitation of the distribution from the Amazonian 
okay, so let me explain this. Southern Venezuela, so, okay, so there is a difference between the Amazon, right, the Amazon rainforest per se, and the Guyana Shield. The Guyana Shield is this thing where there uh, is a high, it's, a, it's sometimes included uh, within the Amazon, but it's biogeographically bio speaking, it's a different entity. And it's highland, it's, it's, it's higher uh, than the Amazon, than most of the Amazon rainforest. And, and it has the tepuis, which are these tabletop mountains. So it, it, it's a different ecosystem. It, it, it involves the Guyana, the, the, a lot of Guyana, uh, and uh, the northernmost part of Brazil, uh, and most of southern Venezuela. But as the Orinoco River goes down southern Venezuela, there is a, a, a section that goes below the river, below, below one of the branches of the Orinoco, which is called the Casiquiare River, which is, that is considered truly Amazonian. And biogeographically, in, in the distribution of many animals, you see there the differences between purely Amazonian taxa and Guyana and Shield taxa. There's a, there's a big Difference in it's an important detector. transition zone. Yes. Mm. Unfortunately, that's one of the worst sample areas in the world because there is it's one of the most sparsely populated places in the world, too. There are only few uh, expeditions that have been mounted to that area. And, of course, the political situation doesn't make it easy to go there now. The, most of the expeditions are old, of when we could go to the area, and I know there have been a lot of expeditions on the northern, northern part of Brazil, close to that area, so we might start, we are already getting some samples from there. Um, however, in this paper, why, why I'm saying this is because in this paper, so I had understood in the 1995 paper that the populations of Matamata that were south of the Casiquiare River were similar to the ones that are Amazonian, which makes sense biogeographically. In this paper, it seems though, those are not, that's not the case, and that those populations are still within the Orinoco Basin Keras, which surprised me. That's the biggest difference that I could find between the two papers. Mike, I have a critique with the paper, is that the distribution map that they show it's not good at all. And the shaded area where it shows the distribution of Kellis has some big problems, especially within the distribution of the Guinness in Venezuela. That's not that difficult to find if they would have done a little bit more research of other papers. But other than that, it's also good to see Kellis getting some love because we haven't seen a lot of papers of Kellis. It's the cool turtle. It's an awesome turtle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, if yeah, you're they're, they're yeah, really uh, yeah. amazing animals um apparently the new species uh which we should mention the name of uh, of Kelus orinocoensis uh or orinocensis actually they dropped the o uh, it's distinguished essentially from from fimbriata by only two different characters which is one that it is uh more more oval in shape instead of rather rectangular and two that it has a, a lighter coloration of the shell and soft parts, which is rather dark in Fimbriata. So, pretty vague morphological differences, but, you know, if, especially if those shell differences really hold up to, if you were to do some statistical shape analysis on them, I'd be willing to believe that. Yeah. 
It's very cool. I mean, the fact that we're still finding uh, such such remarkable new new turtle and tortoise species. Um, I think those are those are really spectacular finds when they do happen. They're really cool. I saw a bunch of baby ones at the last uh, reptile show I was at. Automatas. Yes, I've seen them many times at reptile shows, actually. I think that the juveniles are really... People get attracted to the juveniles and don't realize that this becomes like a A a five kilo, six kilo I've seen them in the wild several times in the Amazon. Oh, really? They get like this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. They, picture, and they picture are the... not as uncommon as you would think. Because uh, the first time I went to the dentist, I was like, "Oh, maybe I see a matamata." I found that guy. <laughs> he's not, he's not, they're not uncommon. Yeah, yeah. Were I, the... I um, yeah. remember talking to a pet store owner when I was young, and, and he was like, "Oh yes, we went to, we went to uh, the Amazon. We ate matamata." <laughs> <laughs> So I, I must say that, that I have never seen, I mean, I've never seen Mat- the Kellos Fimbriata in the wild. I've seen Kellos, the new one. I've seen the Kellos Orinocensis in, yeah. in the wild. Cool. So what do you think of the phylogeny, Mark? The phylogeny is really hard to interpret. Right? I thought the same. It's very mixed and there's a very big polytomy and yeah... I mean, generally speaking, I, I really trust um, uh, Uwe Fritz, who's the, the senior author on this in terms of his, his phylogenetic stuff. He's been doing some really cool phylogenomic stuff with ancient um, specimens as well. So he's, he's got the, the methods down. So um, I uh, honestly, it's mostly because I, I find it currently the paper is in a form where the um, figures are disassociated from their captions, which makes it extremely difficult to figure Navig- out what the figure is actually it, yeah. representing. So you have to keep scrolling back and forth, and I find that very annoying. Um, but no, I think on the whole, uh, um, I'd be willing to believe them. I think it's pretty good. And yeah, there, there's something going on where, where there's this early divergence or maybe there's ongoing gene flow that's causing a bit of a, a, a loss of uh, resolution in, around the 10, 12 million year uh, yeah. mark. But biographically, yeah. I must say that this is a common thing. It's what I was explaining. There's always an Amazonian in there and a shield or in Okinawa. Yeah. You know, so, so I do want to mention the fact that the figures in the paper are generally beautiful the the, yeah. the the turtle pictures themselves are beautiful i mean really really nice so did you say the, the plastron was part of the diagnostic for this yeah the yeah, color the of the plastron yeah. that's cool they have yeah. like matamatas have a, i think the difference is that matamatas have like a, or the amazonian matamata has has like is dark and large right and the and the orinocan matamata is pale now i gotta go look, next time if i ever go to a reptile show again we'll see if that ever happens <laughs> uh now i gotta <laughs> i gotta go pick up all the all of them and look at the plaster on <laughs> Yeah, they might be. I mean, they might be floating around in the tree. Who knows? Or do they develop that as they age? Is it good question? Yeah, don't know. They might mention it in the paper, but I, I haven't seen that. Yeah, you might, you might want to. The, 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 this paper is not open access, but uh, uh, the old paper, the nineteen ninety five paper, it is available online. And you can, yeah, I know. Well, I know, I remember Darren citing that when I did yeah, the comic yeah. for it. So, yeah. 
Cool. Cool. All right, we're going to move on to some other crazy discoveries. This time, a paper by Jennifer Y. Lamb and Matthew P. Davis, uh, published in Scientific Reports, that just made all of the other fluorescent work that has been done look pretty, pretty dull or, well, not dull, but um, narrow in focus, because they went through and basically shone uh, UV and blue lights on as many amphibians as they could, and they found out that pretty much all of them biofluoresce. So um, the paper title is Salamanders and Other Amphibians Are Aglow with Biofluorescence. Um, I bet and you all, listeners... those, all those geneticists who splice jellyfish teens in, into axolotls <laughs> feel pretty silly now, don't they? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, um, it's actually a really good point that we presume that the fluorescence that they're using is very, very different from the one that is naturally in the sort of mucus um, that they're finding within these amphibians. And important to note, a lot of the fluorescence that they're seeing is so weak that have it having a biological function is practically a laughable idea. I mean, because I, I, mean, I, I have some GFP axolotls and, and I just raised some eggs and you can shine, even at the egg stage, you can shine the UV light at the eggs and tell which ones have that and don't. And the ones that don't, there's I mean, nothing. You know? Hynobias are, of course, really well known for the fact that their egg oh, cases, yeah. in fact, yeah. glow of natural purposes. There was yep. uh, not too long ago a paper published by uh, Michelle Milinkovic and colleagues that was talking about Hynobias eggs and the fluorescence and we, we, how that I, fluorescence works and stuff. As mammals, we just have to realize that we just are the only ones that don't fluoresce. So. Yeah, yeah, but even humans have been shown to maybe fluoresce a little bit. Like our teeth fluoresce like crazy. And um, people say that apparently skin possibly fluoresces. But the question then always for every one of these papers has to be, is this biologically significant? significant yeah. And actually they discussed it really nicely in the paper, talking about how, um, yeah, there are some frogs that can see very, very good color in the dark. And this, of course, has to be relevant during whenever they're active or then alternatively could be um, relevant to their predators or whatever. But I, somehow I, it would have to be selected for if it has a function. For researchers that are here in this program, I want to say... I want to give you a hint. Look at the ocelli in lizards. See what that's doing. Because there's a ton of ocelli that are very bright. And I would like to see what those are, uh, you know, what those look like with UV light. Well, very probably they are reflecting UV light, but they're not actually emitting, like taking no, yeah. UV light and converting right. it into another wavelength. Well, for sure. But, but, I, but I was still, I mean, they are doing something that that's what i would like to see yeah. is to see it there because yeah. they are there for a reason and, and uh stories like there the night bulb, night bulb lizard from trinidad might be more substantiated mm. than people think <laughs> i think we can is expect that, a, that, that like there will be some very cool no. stuff it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a lizard that when first was described was thought to be bioluminescent to have like uh but it it, it became like a story and then people for years were not sure if the if the lizard for real was bioluminescent at some point, or if it was no. It's, it has a celli on the side. Yeah. It's like in the yeah. by the way. It has a celli on the side that are very bright. And, yeah, it's a and, Jimmy. It's a Jimmy. Yeah. Which, by the way, I just want to 
denounce Mark and Ethan, who doesn't let who don't let me talk about Game of Thrones in the show. If you want to hear me talk about Game of Thrones in the show, please say something on Twitter because they won't let me. They won't let me talk about one of the coolest groups of lizards in the Neotropics. The, the gym right, of an hour. On. We're we're still talking about salamanders here, right? Yeah. There, no, but there are lots of really cool fluorescent stories that are surely going to still come in the future. Um, and yeah, you'll just have to wait for some of those cool things to come out. I don't know about Ocelli, but I know of some other ones that are, that are pretty cool. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much all I wanted to talk about that. Uh, listeners are probably, or might be aware that I was one of the authors who, uh, described, uh, fluorescence in chameleons for the first time. So I have a personal interest in all of these, um, fluorescent stories and what they're showing us, um, we know from Brachycephalus, for example, are also doing the same thing that chameleons have. So their skin is so translucent and their bones are so fluorescent that you can shine a torch on them and they fluoresce like crazy. That was that um, story was apparently independently discovered two or three different times and published within two or three months of each other without citing one another, which is and quite for, a funny story. And for our American listeners, a flashlight. Don't take a torch. Yes. <laughs> True. True. In yes. a pitchfork. <laughs> a torch in a pitchfork. Well, how else are you going to pin the lizards down? Um, right. Okay, we'll, we'll move on again. Let's talk about uh, Andres F. Jaramillo. Fuck, I can't pronounce it. Jaramillo at all. Jaramillo. Okay, Andres F. Caramillo et al. Uh, this is another paper that is in press, I believe, at Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution. So cool. Which is super cool. Yes. Super cool. So the paper is titled Vastly Undermate. Fuck. Vastly Underestimated Species Richness of Amazonian Salamanders, Plethodontidae Bolitoglossa, <coughs> and Implications About Plethodontid Diversification. Now, people, on, we, on the show, we have previously discussed a little bit about Bolitoglossa and things about them becoming like arboreal versus terrestrial evolution within salamanders and stuff. Bolitoglossa are very, very cool salamanders. They are um, Some of the largely arboreal. Warmth tolerant uh, also. There yes, rainforest to an extent. species. Yeah. yeah, to an extent, yeah. right. Not... Right, but they they live in warmer climates than most salamanders do. Well, so because I mean you have to remember that a lot of these species cloud, are found in cloud or cloud Andean forests, forest, yeah. even in high yeah. Andes. So yeah, yeah, and they have weird feet. A lot yeah. of them. They have very <laughs> weird feet. I think that's the main thing that people know about Bolitoglossa. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the cool thing is that Bolitoglossa. For a long time, the Amazonian Volitoglossa was believed to be one species, which is Volitoglossa altamazonica. And now, in recent years, we found that it's a lot much, a lot more widely distributed, and a lot of these uh, populations are actually different species. Mm -hmm. Which is a part of surprise. I that mean, seems to be a I theme today was, that we've had. <laughs> uh, pretty much everything we've well, talked yeah. about is has been. <laughs> Think about how little these animals move. Right. So it's very easy for them to be, uh, you know, restricted to a small right. area right. where they totally. can isolate from others. Yeah. yeah. So for for a long time, 
they were like, you know, I've always, you, you always get the impression that, yeah, you know, once species started being described near, you know, next to the Amazon, uh, Amazonica complex, you see, yeah, this is going to be several species. What surprised me is the amount of several species that there were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, this, they're, they're saying that they're all about 40. Yeah. So, so they estimate around 44 potentially new species within um, the Bodictoglossa. So they, they included about 75% of all species that have already been described, right, in their phylogeny. And I guess they're assuming that none of those 44 new species rep- are represented by existing names, but those, those are potentially or candidate uh, real new species. I was a little bit annoyed that they didn't use candidate species terminology, which is ironic because the title of the paper seems to be, and I know that they have cited this other paper as well, it seems to be a, um, a kind of callback to a paper that was published by David Vitis et al. in 2009 that's called A Vast Underestimation of the uh, Amphibian Diversity of Madagascar. And um, that paper is where, or sorry, vast underestimation of Madagascar's biodiversity in ha- evidenced by an integrative amphibian inventory. And in that paper, they established candidate species for exactly this purpose. So candidate species come in, in three or two different kinds, really unconfirmed candidate species where there's no real evidence in addition to genetics. So there's genetic distance, but there's no real additional evidence that this is a new species. Um, confirmed candidate species are cases where it's genetically very distinct and at least one other line of evidence is suggesting that this really is different from everything else that's known. And then, of course, you can have these deep conspecific lineages which have the same kind of genetic distance but are pretty certainly um, uh, the same species. So those three things were essentially established by this Vietas et al. paper, and I, I, like the one paper starting with vast underestimation of, and the other starting with vastly underestimated, seems to clearly be a parallel to me. And then they don't seem to use candidate species or candidate species numbering for these, which is a bit unfortunate. Um, but they have numbered them through, so they they do now have the numbers established. Um, Unlike Vietas at all, they seem to have actually used some real uh, species delimitation algorithms um, to try and get at this diversity. And those are shown in particular in figures, can't see, figure, it's so small, six. Um, But yeah, I mean, the diversity of these salamanders is completely insane. And and, and let's just say that these these 44 candidate species are just in the Amazonia. It's yeah. not taking into account the rest of the distribution yeah, right. of Volitoglossa to the rest of South America. Even, even Plethodo- so. there's other plethodontids there too. I, I think no. Volitoglossa is the only is the only uh, that far south. Yeah, east of the Andes. Well, the, actually, these groups of Volitoglossa are the only Volitoglossas east of the Andes. Okay. Uh, west of the Andes, there's Volitoglossa, and I think Oedipina enters into Colombia, but I'm not sure. And that's the only, only something. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'll admit too that I like once you get below Mexico, it's kind of just those are all the. <laughs> but I don't know any it's of them. a huge because they're poorly studied. Yeah, but it's they're very very diverse. Like, uh, uh, Glossa within South America, I'm not sure how many species it has, but 
counting these 44, you, you probably have close to like 100. Yeah. They're all, a lot of them are endangered though. That's super interesting rare, too, but. because everybody always talks about how the Appalachians are the most diverse set for salamanders uh, in the world, you know, like one of the most diverse hotspots in the world for salamanders. And if there's <laughs> if there's now a hundred species of polyglots, that might not be true. <laughs> well, but they're distributed through a much larger area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, the the biomass that's being made up in the two different areas as a percentage of the overall biomass. Oh yeah. In what is it like? The Appalachians is so much higher. Uh, just redback salamanders alone account for like. It's like a huge percentage of the biomass. It is a given. huge percentage. No, I can listen, never remember the numbers. in yeah. South America are rare. Yeah. It's not easy to find one now, especially because a lot of things are endangered. And in some cases, I will tell you that finding a bolitoglosa is almost as hard as finding a Sicilian. Yeah. Not, probably not as hard, but it's getting there. <laughs> you got to look up, not down. Or, no, depending. The, the high angle species are under rocks and stuff. Oh, yeah. But... Yeah, so I was just reading this um, really amazing paper um, that's by Rovito et al., published in 2013, so obviously it's not breaking notes at all anymore. Um, but it's this paper that reconstructs the evolution, the adaptive radiation of thorius salamanders, mm -hmm. which are the smallest, possibly the smallest um, brained tetrapods. They are extremely, extremely small salamanders. And they do all kinds of really cool um, reconstruction of these salamanders within um, Mexico. Right. I was going to say, they are Mexican. Yeah. They the are species. a Mexican thing. They're all in the highlands. And they're really cool because they are uh, also found under rocks. And sometimes you find two different species under the same rock. And it turns yeah. out, even though they're so small and they look very samey from sort of a distance, if you actually start looking at them in detail... They have all kinds of morphological differences, so they're actually really distinctive. Um, they species. could be the and they could be the microhylids of of, uh, <laughs> of of caudata. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I, I think you know they they're also members of the Bolitoglossini, um, and they are undoubtedly also underestimated. Many different species that are still waiting to be described there. But, you know, if that's true of the Thorius things, I can easily imagine it also of Polyteglossa. So I have no problem uh, believing that there are indeed another 44 species that are that are waiting to be described. The nice yeah. thing is that these are the 44 species that we already have in museums. We've already got the specimens of them. So now you can do the same thing that we've done in all these other systems. You yeah. can describe that out. Um, the problem is, of course... In the meantime, you're going to discover another 44 new species. I hope describe. Exactly. I hope describe and then protect too, because that's a thing with a lot of the, especially the, <sighs> the Mexican stuff you see coming in to the country. Uh, yeah, that is one part. And for this, for this other American species, is habitat destruction. So yeah, yeah. So I mean, the the main way that we can protect them is doing blanket um, uh, landscape scale uh, protections for the forests. Um, what we need after that is, of course, a careful consideration of which species are we going to put on uh, on CITES, um, or do we just list all of Bolitoglossa on CITES and say, all right, we should protect all of them from the Petra because... I think we um, should, yeah. <laughs> Overexploited. I mean, if they're all really such small microendemics, then yeah, it would totally make sense. Yeah. Yep. Right, we're going to move on to some, some crazy-ass snakes. Um... 
So this paper is by Tatsuya Yoshida et al. published in, in PNAS. Uh, and it's t entitled Dramatic Dietary Shift Maintains Sequestered Toxins in Chemically Defended Snakes. Which is a fancy way of saying poisonous, poisonous snakes yes. that get and, their and, poisons from a different source. And we really mean it, poisonous, in a yes, totally romantic yes. way. <laughs> yeah. Really important. So, of course, uh, I think we've said it enough time on the show before, but just so that you can tell your friends and family, <laughs> almost no snakes are poisonous. Most snakes are venomous because venom is injected and poison is ingested. And there are a few exceptions, and those are pretty much all in the genus Rhabdophis. And what's for now cool no, uh, is... Is that true? For now. Sam, no, for, no, now. Say for now. You, okay. All right, I'll shut up. Let me know. <laughs> what were you going to say? Well, I was th uh, you said Rhabdophis, right? Yes. Because Th Thamnophis as well. D are well, Thamnophis species truly poisonous? Yes. The, the whole I, thing with the arms race with, the, uh, with Tarika. Well, uh, this is what I was going to say. I think we haven't looked into this with enough uh, detail. Because yeah. if one thing that snakes like to do is eat toads. Sometimes very poisonous. Or, or nukes, in this case, with uh, with the Thamnophis out west. That's what I was talking exactly. about with Tarika. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm thinking, for example, Cenodon uh -huh. uh, snakes from South America, which are specialized in eating toads. Yep. You know, which are, we, we all know. So I, I have somebody looked into this into Stenodon? I doubt it. I think <laughs> a lot. This is. I think uh, this is, will be a lot. It's what. It's like the bioluminescent thing. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah. Or the fluorescent, not the bioluminescent thing. The fluorescent thing. That we're gonna start finding that it's a lot more ubiquitous. Yeah, well, totally. I wonder if it's because with the toads, it's it's a it's the the bufotoxin complex, but with correct yeah. with the newts, it's TTX, right? It's tetrodotoxin. It's a different. Uh, Very different toxin. Yeah. yeah. And then there is batacotoxin and a lot of things that we start have to look at. Right? Yeah. So I think one of the things that gives it away in the case of Rhabdophis is their behavior and their coloration. So if you if a Rhabdophis feels threatened, it flattens its neck and raises the neck with the head pointed down, making this red patch or yellow patch on top of the head the very strikeable area. And it's like it's putting that place, which is where those those poisons are are um, sequestered, putting yeah. that directly within the path of the potential aggressor. Go ahead, I and dare so, you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so it's this behavior that um, that immediately gives it away as being like ah, that's maybe something that's worth looking at. And in a lot of cases, like yes, we know that there's an ecological tie between animals eating poisons, uh, poisonous um, uh, food sources that doesn't necessarily imply that they're also sequestering those toxins and using snakes them. They might. That snakes that flatten their necks and show color, bright colors in the interstitial scales within those scales in the neck. Where have I seen that? Oh, wait, a lot of South American species that do the same shit. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Uh, where there are no toads. But mm. they're probably eating something else that... There are all kinds of other poisonous frogs. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Somebody has to look at this. 
in other things. It and seems so, like a thing. Yeah. So you yeah. see, if we were doing what the fish people are doing and tasting all of our specimens, <laughs> we would know by now. Well, <laughs> we'd be dead. <laughs> yeah. Yes, probably. possibly, possibly. So, okay, what the, the crazy thing about this paper is, essentially, there is a whole group of rhabdophis that stopped eating toads. But they're still poisonous. Mm. How? How are they still poisonous if they're originally getting all of that poison from the toads that they eat? Well, it seems that the answer is, so these, these rhabdophis that don't eat toads anymore, they now eat worms. But the worms don't have the toxins. So to make up for that and to acquire... Toxins of at least the same class, they're eating firefly larvae. Uh-huh. So the firefly larvae are, are producing, yep. apparently, a very similar toxin. And uh, these things that like invertebrates all of a sudden are going for those firefly yep. larvae instead of having toads. I think fireflies at all stages are, are pretty toxic. Uh, if, as I recall, I know someone who had a, a bearded dragon who, who they fed fireflies to and it... <coughs> died not a great idea (laughs) terrible idea uh yeah it was too late by the time anyone told them so that's probably worth mentioning so there i mean um a lot of people feed wild food to their animals like chameleons yeah are very often fed wild wild food and i would also not i would have just been like oh yeah firefly i'll throw that in there it's just another beetle yep. field, and, it's a um, uh, field plankton you know it's <laughs> yeah field plankton exactly you go out with your plankton net it's great uh, but yeah no apparently um, don't, don't don't feed do them that. fireflies yeah no and also you know you never know when wild insects can be contaminated with pesticides and stuff, yeah. which is not which good. is the bigger so problem pesticide is here. a real issue yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it's why so, I, I mean that's why i don't do it i have to i have to mail order all my friggin insects a lot of people are worried about parasites and i would just say parasites in in areas like if if i were to go out catching bugs in europe being worried about a parasite that's going to infect my frog or lizard is completely ridiculous It's, it's just zero chance basically that it's going to actually be able to establish in that new completely novel host um but the pesticides thing is a really good shout yeah we should be very very careful of that yeah so yeah. this paper is very cool. Um, obviously, it's so cool that it got published in PNAS, which is a pretty decent journal, even though it has a silly name. And um, well, that's I yeah. mean that's some very cool uh, substitution happening there. Like that's... it's a very weird substitution, isn't it? Yeah. It's like okay, well, they suddenly lost their toxins, but they maintain, I guess, the, it's, the, it's the, a the very, pathway. It's a, you know what it strikes me as? It's a, it's a life like, oh, uh, finds a way, life. Jurassic Park esque sort of it twist. It is very much, yeah. I, I think, I think, I think this has to be looked at in. I'm even thinking that it has to be looked at it, even when you take into consideration aposematic coloration. Even to stuff like coral snakes, where coral snake aposematic before they got venom because of this, and then false coral snakes are really mimicking those things. Because I'm because I'm thinking right now that a lot of these snakes that eat frogs or um, invertebrates, well, uh, at, about- at least in at least in the neotropics, tend to be coral mimics. How about hog noses? Uh, well, has, yeah. Has anybody checked on the the, the poisonous content Perfect of hog noses? Of because they're primarily be... toad eaters, you know. Yep. 
Those are also very head flattening when they and get very yeah. head flat. Yeah, exactly. Does the same thing. And they tend to have color in the interstitial scales between this. The, yep. the, and they I stink. Used, I used to have to keep a dead toad in the freezer to scent mice with to get hog noses to eat. Mice. But, but you, you get what I'm saying about the aposematic coloration? Like, Absolutely, are we sure yeah. That, yeah. yeah. So I, I think how did aposematic coloration evolve in stuff like coral snakes? Was it to because the animal was already venomous? I think you, but like you said, I think you start with looking at snakes that, pri- that primarily predate on amphibians in general because i think that's probably or 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 now that we know certain invertebrates that may have the same right you know so like for example i'm thinking about about stenorina in the neotropics that preys primarily on centipedes what you know how are you know what are they doing are they also because they prey on centipedes and other invertebrates so you is know, there any? Uh, how about blind snakes? Is there any indication that blind snakes are poisonous? Do we know? Ants. Because ants. of the ants, yeah. Just like dark, I'm thinking like dark frogs. You know, I know that there are other snakes that eat them, and they don't seem to have too much trouble with it. So, hmm. but I mean, there's a huge diversity of blind snakes. We know almost nothing about them. We'll come back to them later. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, this is a really cool story. It it almost doesn't um, doesn't fully add up. How can you possibly realize like not getting the thing in your diet that is somehow protecting you, so you find another completely different source of that thing instead of just eating baby toads? It's bizarre. Um, yeah, so that's that's a very cool yeah. one. And and uh, uh, I, I don't understand that at all. It, well, it seems to me like like what we're all saying is that this seems like an area that maybe could be studied a lot more, like a lot of oh, things, but yeah, could like be studied everything. a lot more. We yeah. know so little yet still about most aspect yeah. of, of reptile and amphibian biology. So Yeah. Right. We'll move on to another PNAS paper, this time by uh, Daniel Pala et al., um, published in, yeah, I've already said PNAS, uh, the paper's title is Evolution of Hyperossification Expands Skull Diversity in Frogs. Mostly, this is a really pretty paper. The, the figures that they produced, the posters that they made out of this paper are bonkers. So the three authors are, are Daniel, there's also Ed Stanley and David Blackburn, and they are... So um, Ed does all of the coolest and most beautiful micro CT imagery that you will ever see on the internet, and uh, and David Blackburn is of course um, in at the Florida University and is doing all kinds of really cool stuff on frogs there, uh, including so they have this big um, one per genus project where they've been scanning all of the frogs of all of the different genera to get together a big data set and lo. We have this paper wherein they have analyzed a very, very large diversity of frogs covering um, the vast majority of different genera. And and from the skull scans that they produced uh, from, it says here, 158 separate species, which is quite impressive. Although I must admit uh, that I myself have scanned over a hundred different species. So are those scans, uh, <laughs> Mark? Are those scans uh, open, uh, available? 
I believe that these scans are now already available in Morphosaurus. Don't quote me on that because I'm not entirely certain. Um, but yeah, they should be available in Morphosaurus. Sorry. I like. Um, I told you the other day. I, I like downloading them and trying to print them now. Three D print them. <laughs> yeah, so, it's really cool. So yeah, um, I'm also working on a, a few different projects related to to frogs and uh, frog skulls and stuff. So I'm also downloading stuff from Morphosource relatively frequently. Um, it's good stuff. Right. So so the real result of this paper uh, is that they've taken these skulls and traced sort of morphological evolution across the phylogeny of the frogs which is always an attractive thing to do when you have such a diverse data set. Um, and what they came out with is that there are certain ways that ecology influences skull shape. And in particular, that um, hyperossification seems to sort of open up the niche space that a frog can explore. So you can become hyperossified either in order to protect your body like in hemifractus, for example, where you have these crazy spines and, and huge ossified plate on top of the head, or um, triprion. Uh, triprion, exactly, where they basically block the hole yeah. um, that they're living in. They, they use this... Um, Aparisphenodon uh, does the same. Uh, uh, exactly. What's the crested toad? I can't remember the... Ceratophorus, the... yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, all, all kinds of different groups have, have evolved this thing independently. And in fact, they reconstruct at least 25 instances of hyperossification evolving within the within Some of frogs. these cask-headed tree frogs, remember that they've described how that also seems to be able to uh, be helpful to... In, uh, I forgot exactly how it was, but it had something to do with the poison that they're using their skin. That he was able to, uh, uh, oh, like let root the uh, yeah to, to the, help yeah. to root the, the poison into. Well, there are of course venomous frogs that are these these very weird like triprion style frogs. Yeah, yeah, where they have these too. spines that are also hyperossified spines that are like hypodermic needles, and those are are forming in a, I suppose the same way. Yeah, um, that's what I'm saying. They're the ossification. Helps yeah. Oh, the one that looks like a yeah. beard, right? It's got like it's got like yes, a spiky. Exactly. It looks like yeah. a mustache. But it's yeah. more common than you thought. It's in this whole radiation of cascaded yeah. free frogs. Yeah, yeah. Although they might not all be venomous, that's not entirely clear. It's the venom has been, venom has been documented from two different species so far. Um, I don't think it's been been found in in the whole radiation of them. Um, although they do all have that cascaded shape. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that those ones, and they don't talk about this as far as I know in the paper, um, but I find it interesting that they sort of have what I would call chaotic bone growth, that bone growth that looks a little bit like, like bone cancer, where the bone is just sort of like, it looks like it's been fizzed a little bit and is mm -hmm. growing all crazy. Um, whereas other kinds of hyperossification can also just involve production of a huge robust skull element like um uh what are they called the helmeted frogs um they look totally silly their eyes are really really far forward anyway there are these these helmeted frogs that look that that have super robust skulls um, but it's not necessarily because they have this this crazy bone growth all over them though there are also different ways that you can become hyper hyper ossified different 
presumably different pathways that are involved in that hyperossification in the first place. Maybe. I was going to say, I was going to look it up, but I can't because of my, my yeah, voice memo. <laughs> the South American thing? Yes, 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 yes. Calyptocephalella. <laughs> what a name. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is a, a really, really cool um, cool frog. The two different species, by the way, that are venomous are Corythomantis greeningi and Aparasvenodon brunoi. Yeah, Aparasvenodon is a several species, so you could think that the species are the same since they are same. I mean, they all share similar morphology. All the species are absolutely Yeah, totally. I mean, you could, you could assume that there's probably a, a wider spread thing. It just hasn't been shown in the other yeah. groups. Is that, is that venom uh, medically significant? Yes. <laughs> you, yeah. 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 It can actually be very dangerous. Um, apparently, it's, it's like being bitten by some of the sort of moderate venomous snakes. Wow. Yeah. Not fun. And if listeners should should um, we could probably put links to pictures of these frogs because they're amazing looking. I just love them. Yeah, really they are cool looking. Yeah. All right, we'll move on now to this paper by Damien Escaray uh, et al. published in Systematic Biology, very nice journal. Um, we'll be talking about it in the next episode as well, and the paper is entitled Phylogenomics, Biogeography, and Morphometrics Reveal Rapid Phenotypic Evolution in Pythons After Crossing crossing Wallace's Line. So among the authors are several names with whom we are very familiar. Damien Escaray, I uh, know Ian Brennan, we mentioned in uh, the two episodes ago when we were talking about the um, World Congress because he was the one who gave the awesome talk that had um, beautiful illustrations. And of course, the lemons are on this paper as well because it involved some anchored phylogenomics, which is their method. So um, yeah, so all kinds of cool people. Um, Sire. Sire, yes, exactly. And uh, Scott Keogh. As well, so like, yeah. Anyway, so what is Wallace's line? Do you guys know what Wallace's line is? Uh, referring it's... to Alfred Russell Wallace, yes, uh, and his, yeah, and his time in uh, in the tropics. I don't his no. good time where he almost <laughs> lost all of where he lost all of his specimens. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah. That's that's about my. I, there's a so it, essentially Wallace's line describes a line that is within Indonesia. Um, it traverses between uh, Bali and Lombok, and then northward between Sulawesi and Borneo. And the the point of the line was that Wallace observed very different animals of a different stock, as he would have called it. Um, on the east side of the line from that on the west side of the line. So on the west side of the line, you had mostly animals that were Asian of origin or Asiatic in flavor, whereas on the east of the line, there is this sort of Australian flavor to them as well. It's where you start to find things like tree kangaroos. An early inkling of biogeography and what that meant. 
Exactly. Wallace yeah. was, of course, the birth, the, the, the grandfather of biogeography as a field as a whole, um, noticing these huge patterns and trying to explain how it could be that we would have on these different islands, assuming everything the same, why on earth would God put completely different animals on the one island and not on the other island? Um, and there must have been these kind of big events that would lead to the current patterns that, are, that the animals um, occupy. And Wallace's line was one of these. There are many different lines that actually divide up this region, depending on who you talk to. So Huxley, for example, to find another line that was sort of a little bit off of Wallace's line. Um, but the, the interesting thing is actually the cases where the animals do cross the lines. Because then you have an animal from one fauna entering an entirely different fauna, where very, very different niches are occupied. And that is really cool because what they have shown with this paper is that the pythons around 23 million years ago, they had been originally from this Asian lineage from the west of the line and they crossed the line east and entered into this new Australopapuan uh, sort of fauna where there were different ecological opportunities. And as a result of those differences in ecological opportunities, they were able to diversify. And so um, what uh, Damien and colleagues have shown is that there is this expected morphological diversification within the skulls of these snakes as they enter that new habitat, um, which is very cool. So they're saying that this happened 23 million years ago? It started 23 million years ago. They crossed into this new habitat 23 million years ago. So there were no pythons in Australia. In Australia I presume that. that is what this implies, yes. Mm. So the lineage then would be also very young. That's a really important point. Yeah. Um, and have diversified a lot. And this is the I nice mean, thing, you know, the, the, the boas and the pythons yeah. have, um, they repeatedly have occupied the same sort of niches. So, of course, Corallus and um, Morelia are the classic yeah. example um, I almost said chondropython. Sorry, that was yeah. yes, uh, of course. Yeah, I also always do that as well. Um, yeah, so you have all of these different niches that have been occupied in these different radiations because the snakes can. There's so much available morphospace, um, and that's essentially what happened when these things crossed that line. They they made it into this new habitat, and then they were able to diversify um, and occupy all of those new habitats. Which is or, or or ecologies, which is very cool. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. That's and this paper is open access, by the way. Um, and it's currently still in preprint, but the nice thing is that the figures are actually in the right place, and they have their associated captions at least somewhere near them, um, which, which is useful. Um, yeah. So. That's basically all I wanted to say about this paper. I think it's really cool. Uh, it's nice. It's, I mean, it's great that it's been published in Systematic Biology. It's a very good journal. Impact factor of like 10.6 or something. Um, that's And it's so, that's a very sort of old school biology kind of a yeah, feel. You know? Yeah, but they, I mean, it's important to mention that they also have the best phylogeny of pythons to date mm -hmm. uh, by quite a lot. So they have... 376 nuclear loci that they've uh, sequenced um, using this anchored uh, anchored phylogenomics approach. Um, 
And they apparently have also made some taxonomic changes. I haven't looked at those taxonomic changes to, to understand them in detail. So um, I don't actually know what the changes are. Um, but yeah, it looks like they... Oh, they've even proposed some new genera. So Navaran is apparently a new genus for which the type species is Unpeliensis, which I've never heard of. <laughs> It is a lineage endemic to northern Australia that underwent a rapid divergence from Antaresia and Morelia hmm. and has intermediate traits between the two. So for those who don't know, Antaresia are mostly sort of semi-terrestrial, uh, small, very small pythons. And Morelia are, of course, these um, tree-dwelling um, pythons. So um, cool that they have something in between them. Really interesting. Great. Okay. And now we're going to move on. Um, we have basically just three more papers that we want to discuss. The first of them, very quickly, we're just going to mention it. It's by Maria Teresa Sandoval et al., published in the Journal of Morphology, which is an old school and beautiful journal. And the uh, paper is entitled Intrauterine and Post Ovipositional Embryonic Development of Amarotyphlops. Brongers, Brongers Mianos uh, yeah. from northeastern Argentina. So, by the way, Brongers Mianos is found all over South America and is probably a species. Ah, distribution is that is good to know. Um, the most important thing about this paper, or the reason this paper is among these um, these ones that we're talking about, is that this is the first developmental series of a typhlopid snake, which is very, very, very cool. And it's doing things uh, very similar to other snakes. Who knew? Um, <laughs> it's, it must be extremely difficult to get this kind of data from these very secretive, small, slender snakes. So um, I think this is a really big deal. And um, Although this one is not so small. Nor well, so it's still small but... compared to a lot of other snakes. I mean, the flop is kind of big. And like a cigar. Yeah. It's like a cigar. It's like two. Yes, but uh, okay, mean, but the, the upper limit on snakes is, you know, anacondas and well, for, for a blind snake it's not for a blind snake it's <laughs> for not a blind snake is not that small, but for you know, for alephinophidians it would be pretty freaking small. There are smaller ones of smaller alephinophidians, of course. Ring tails, for example. It's all relative. Um, yeah. Ring necks, I mean, sorry. Anyway. <laughs> the point being, this is a really cool paper. Go check it out if you're interested in developmental biology and if you're interested in snake evolution because I think it has really important implications for how we interpret the evolution of snakes as I have waxed lyrical about in the past and I have written papers about or a paper about and I talked about it at the World Congress of Herpetology. So I got, I got to say, yes. if they've made it this far into the podcast, then they probably are interested <laughs> in snake evolution. So go check that out. And, yeah. yeah, go check that out. <laughs> All right, the last two papers, as I've mentioned before, I always want to try and highlight anything that involves like a new big data set. Um, so that includes genomes. The first one is a new genome of uh, Trachemis scripta elegans, so the red-eared slider, mm. which a lot of people will be familiar with. It's a this, very, oh. very, very popular turtle in the pet trade. And um, the genome looks great. It has a chromosome level assembly. I mean, I should mention that the um, 
title of the paper, an annotated chromosome level reference genome of the red-eared slider turtle, Parkemis scripta elegans. And um, so Bryce that it's taken this long to because they're everywhere there have been there there have yeah. been um trachemis scripta elegans genomes before i think this is just a much much better assembly mm. i think i could be wrong it annoys it annoys me to still call, call the things under a single species <laughs> okay yes, side yes, note. Side note. Sorry, yeah. i had to say it. i had to say it. yeah fair enough um yeah, they say they, they hope that it can be used for a research, a f- future research on tetrapod and turtle evolution because it's probably the best turtle genome to date, uh, which I easily believe, um, which is cool. All right. And then the last uh, last article here I wanted to talk about is this uh, new paper by Michael C. Grundler, Biodiversity Data Journal. Um, the paper is called Squamatabase. A natural history database and R package for com- comparative biology of snake feeding habits. Um, the, the, he stole the name of our headquarters. <laughs> yeah, he kind of did. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was the fortress of schematitude. <laughs> oh, that is good. Fortress of schematitude. Um, yeah, so this, this database contains records of 18,304 predator individuals being eaten by 1,227 snakes, snake species. Oh, wait, hold the phone. 18,304 individual snake records comprising 1,227 species consuming 58,633 prey items. Okay, that's a big, that's a fairly big uh, Holy data smokes, set. that's a lot yeah. of data. <laughs> so I'm mostly interested in this because I have an ongoing snake project with uh, Emma Sherritt, which I'm hoping I'll be able to bring back to life at some point in the near future. And um, maybe he has some data that, that th- I didn't have related to the snakes. And these are all, uh, uh, really cool. dumb question again, but these are all records of wild snakes. I presume and hope so. Yes. Curious about that. I mean, he doesn't use the word wild in the paper. Um, but I, but I think he must be using natural history life. observations, so yeah, real ones. Yeah. 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 Yeah, one would hope, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 I can't easily find out if that's the case or not, but... Then it doesn't be... If it's not like that, then it's not... Well, that's what I was no, going to exactly, say. Yeah. I <laughs> fed 58,000 mice to my exactly. snakes at home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that's it. Um, I, I think we have exhausted all of our listeners um, by going through these really cool papers that have been published just in the last few months. Um, it's always fun to get to share with you guys the latest research. And, um, and actually, for me, it's also super useful because, as you know, I'm working on fish now. And, uh, you know, I like to have a lot more connection with, with the herb research and keep on top and of things. we also hope that you have, that we have, you know, taking the time to inform you and, and get you out a little bit of all the nasty things. Yes. Yes. I mean, nothing is, is better to be done at home when you're stuck at home than to listen to podcasts. And hopefully <laughs> ours is one of the yes. ones that you enjoy. So 
If I mean, literally at this point, I can't imagine that you're still listening to us if you don't enjoy it. So thank you for sticking with it. Um, uh, that one guy you know, out the there whole, who's hate listening to us. Uh, the whole point of us moving moving to this. You'd be surprised. Yeah. No, I wouldn't. You'd no, be wouldn't. surprised. I, I've been there. Yeah, you know, you know that. I know that you know that yeah. well. Um, oh, that's not the best. <laughs> The whole point of us moving to this. Oh God, those guys and their snakes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just making a very angry list about what everything we've gotten wrong. Oh, these bastards! They're always getting oh, everything yeah. wrong. Oh, yes. what a bunch of twats. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, we moved to this new format so that we would have shorter episodes, and yeah, that- now at two two hours seven minutes of recording time, we have clearly failed you, the listeners. <laughs> However, I think that this is still an improvement because you don't still have an hour and a half of listening to do. Yeah. You've just gotten to this point and we're happy and we can move on. So that is it. We're going to wrap it up. Um, thank you for listening. We hope you like the show. If you really do like the show and you want to support us, you can go to iTunes and leave us a review or a uh, just a rating is also totally great. If you share the show with your friends on Facebook or on a social media platform that doesn't make you want to rip your eyes out all the time, um, we really, really appreciate it, especially if you share it on Twitter, because that's where we're the most active and that's where we see it the most. Um, you can yeah. find us all over the internet. Gabriel, where can one find you? You can find me at at Serpent Illus on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. You can find me as Gabriel Ghetto Art. And you can find my website, GabrielGhetto.com. And Ethan? So uh, I can be found as at Black Mud Puppy, most places, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And I now have a portfolio site as well. Uh, EthanKosak.com where you can find most of the other stuff if you're looking for it, Patreon and all that. Excellent. More about that in the yeah. next episode. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So in the next episode, of course, we'll be talking about uh, more personal things, uh, works in progress, as they're called. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about some pretty fucking cool lizards. So tune in for that. You can catch me on the internet at Mark Shirts on Twitter and instagram and unfortunately not on facebook but <laughs> if you find me at mark shirts on facebook don't add me if we're not actually friends <laughs> go to my page md shirts Same for um, me. <laughs> and uh, and you can you can follow the page and figure out what's going on there uh, i also have a website markshirts.com and um yeah you can follow the podcast well you're already listening to the podcast but you can go to our show notes, which are extensive, include all of the references in properly formatted bibliogra- bibliography style, because I am a nerd and I want to do it properly at squamitspod.com. Extremely yep. anal. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at squamitspod. You can find us on Facebook, squamitspod. We almost never post on Instagram, squamitspod, but we're going to try and fix that. If you want to just send us fan mail or emails or tell us what we're doing well or how you are dealing with these crazy times and specifically with reference to reptiles and amphibians and especially 
If you're like listening to the show and doodling on the side all kinds of herp art, we want to see it. So send it to us and we will, if with your permission, feature it on all of our social media because we love you and you're the best. And with that, as we say on the show, Hakuna Squamata. Hakuna Squamata.